We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The baseball season is go, go, go. It's nonstop, relentless for every night, six straight months, and then hopefully another month in October. You also have work, friends, family, and a million other things going on. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. I mean, the mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when your beer is cold. Is there anything better than opening up your refrigerator after a long day, seeing that icy cold Coors Light can or bottle in your fridge? The answer is no, there's nothing better. That's why when it's time to chill, you choose Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So that's why when you want to hit reset, reach for a beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate. What's up and welcome to a history edition of the Bronx Pinstripe Show. Today, MLB owners versus the players, the oldest rivalry in sports. Today we are brought to you by Bet Online. There's no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partner, betonline.ag. Sports are slowly making their way back, and BetOnline is leading the way with the best odds and lines for all UFC, NASCAR, boxing, and soccer matches. And who knows, maybe there'll be some MLB lines soon too. And if you need any more action, they have simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC events all day, every day, live on their website. Looking for something other than sports? BetOnline has hundreds of casino games, poker tournaments, and prop bets to check out. Visit betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE for a free welcome bonus. That's one word, BLUEWIRE. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. 
I came across a funny quote in doing this research. It was said by Jim Bouton, a pitcher for the Yankees in the 1960s and author of Ball Four, among a few other things. He said, the reason baseball calls itself a game is because it's too screwed up to be a business. Bouton seems like he was the cynical type, which is my kind of guy, but the quote is dead on accurate. You know, I was trying to think of a title for this episode. I knew it was going to be MLB owners versus the players, but then I needed something. And then it just hit me. The oldest rivalry in sports. It's been going on for forever, for 150 years. On Monday's show, Scott and I talked about trust being at the heart of the ongoing and never-ending feud between the MLB Players Association and the MLB owners. I promise this is going to be a history show, not a current events show, but it's the perfect setup to the episode, what we are dealing with right now between these two sides. To dumb down the current dispute, owners claim they will lose money for every game they hold without fans. Players say that is not their problem and they want 100% of the prorated salary for every game played like they agreed to in March. Owners presented financial data to the union to prove their claims. Players don't trust that data. There have been a ton of numbers floated about the exact revenue and dollar amounts that would be paid based on a 48, 82, 70, 114, whatever number game schedule. Whether the deal gets done or not, the bottom line is this. The players flat out do not trust the owners, A, are being fully transparent about their economic outlook in 2020 with no fans, two, have the game's best interest in mind, and D, will do the right thing by them in 2020 and beyond. That's a little Home Alone joke for you. Hope you caught it. All right, let's get into it. The Players Association was officially founded in 1954, but remained utterly powerless for basically its first 12 years of existence. The first professional baseball team, the Cincinnati Red Stockings, were founded in 1869. It's 150 years ago. That means for almost a century there was no union, and to this day, more than half of baseball's history took place pre-union. But it's in those pre-union days where the seeds of distrust and resentment between the owners and the players were planted. It all started with the reserve clause, which was imposed on every player's contract in the 1880s. Prior to that, players actually made decent money by freely shopping their talent in an open market system. This system was not without its problems, however. Teams would raid each other's roster by offering pay increases to top players who would then jump teams within a season. That's obviously no way to have a competitive league. The reserve clause took care of that issue as well as removed any and all power the player had. It gave the team rights to a player's services forever. Gave the owners the power to control if players played, where they played, and how much money they played for. If they didn't like it, they could take up any number of the glamorous 1880s professions like farmer, factory worker, saloon keeper, or they could be an outlaw. The clause not only marked the first time the owners won up the players, but was the first instance of owner collusion. During the 1878 to 79 offseason, owners secretly agreed not to raid each other's rosters, but limited it to a list of five reserved players, in other words, exempt players. By the mid-1880s, the reserve clause expanded to the entire team. By the late 1880s, players actually agreed to it in their contract because they they really didn't have any other alternative. And it took nearly 100 years before that clause was abolished. It didn't take long before the players realized they got screwed. In 1890, they tried to start the Players League. Something else happened in 1890. The Players League folded. Now jumping ahead 50 years to the 1940s when the owners set up a pension system for the players just out of the goodness of their own hearts. Nah, just kidding. There had been efforts by the players to unionize and this was the owner's way of deterring that from happening. 
players didn't really care much because their main goal was a pension, so they got what they wanted, on paper at least. Over the next decade, the pension went underfunded, which is why in 1954, players officially unionized, forming the Major League Baseball Players Association. It had major issues, though. They didn't have an actual office or anywhere to meet. It was insolvent because most players refused to pay union dues, and they had no leader. It was headed by Bob Feller, who, to put it nicely, was incompetent. His most trusted advisor just also happened to work for the law firm that represented the New York Giants' ownership. Shockingly, they advised against the union ever striking or fighting to abolish the reserve clause. Between 54 and 65, things didn't get much better. They struggled to find competent leadership, probably because they had no money, so they settled on Judge Robert Cannon as a part-time head. He hilariously openly lobbied to be Major League Baseball commissioner, so maybe he wasn't the best candidate for the job to lead the players. It also didn't help that unions had a bad reputation in American society at the time. Union meant strike, which meant no money. Union meant corruption. Union meant mob connections. You saw the Irishman, right? I went through all of that to demonstrate how poorly the players were organized and represented up until this point. It was a glamorous and prosperous profession if you were Mickey Mantle. But what if you were a relief pitcher or a backup infielder? Or, or what if you were a minority? Even though by the late 1950s the entire league was integrated, do you think the owners treated Elston Howard the same way they treated Mickey? Not so much. In 1966, the players hired Marvin Miller, who changed the game for them. It was the best decision they ever made. Reflecting on the situation he walked into in 66, Miller said, The biggest problem in the beginning was the low self-esteem of the players. They had been so beaten down that they didn't really understand their value in the game. Miller started to slowly chip away at the owner's armor in the late 60s, winning the pension battle, galvanizing the union, and negotiating two new CBAs that were more beneficial to the players than any agreement prior. He led the first ever player strike in 1972, which won them salary arbitration. This was like opening the eyes of the players for the first time. They no longer feared the unknown of striking and instead saw the power in unity. Among his many other accomplishments, Miller got pensions fully funded, saw the average salary rise from $19,000 in 1966 to $250,000 in 1982. That's a 1,200% increase in 16 years. He guided the players through two strikes and three lockouts. Undoubtedly, though, his biggest contribution was the abolishment of the reserve clause. How far apart were the two sides on this issue? Here's a clip from news coverage of Kurt Flood's fight against the reserve clause. Flood was an outfielder for the Cardinals who refused to trade to the Phillies, challenging the reserve clause. He eventually lost the battle after three years of fighting it in court. The lawyers for the major leagues would not talk for the cameras, but in the courtroom, they argued that the reserve clause is essential to the future of organized baseball, that without the reserve clause, all the rich teams would get all the star players. But Arthur Goldberg maintains that the reserve clause, tying a player to one team for the rest of his life, is in violation of the 13th Amendment. That's the amendment against slavery and indentured servitude. After losing the battle against the reserve clause with Flood, Miller and the PA won the war in 74. Cy Young winner Catfish Hunter used the arbitration to challenge Oakland A's owner for not paying a contractually obligated annuity payment on his contract. Hunter won the case and his contract was torn up for being in breach. Thus, Catfish Hunter became baseball's first prime free agent in the winter of 74-75. Guess where he signed? Steinbrenner and the Pinstripes came calling with a five-year, $4.5 million contract. This kind of money sent waves through the sport. 
but the reserve clause was still alive. The next year, Messersmith and McNally happened. No, that's not a law firm. Miller led Dodgers pitcher Andy Messersmith and Orioles pitcher Dave McNally to play without signing a new contract. After the season, they filed an arbitration case contending they were free agents. It was ruled that they had completed the duty of their contracts and they were indeed free agents. And just like that, the reserve clause was dead and free agency was born. The arbiter who rid the reserve clause called Marvin Miller the Moses who led baseball's children of Israel out of the land of bondage. Miller smartly realized this outcome could end up hurting the players though, because too many free agents could actually drive salaries down. Too much supply, not enough demand. So he offered the owners the six-year service time approach, which is still in use today. This created a steady supply of free agents for each winter market. The players were on a great winning streak. They saw the power they had through striking and were now making more money than ever before. Before Miller's time was up, the players would strike once more. In 81, the players went on strike during the season when owners tried to implement free agent compensation for the team that lost the player, paid for by the team that signed the player. The ultimate goal here, obviously, was to drive free agent salaries down and player mobility down. The owners lost this battle as well. The best way to summarize Marvin Miller's time leading the Players Association is this. When he took over in 1966, you could barely call the Players Association a union. When he stepped down in 1982, the Players Association was the most powerful union in the country, not just sports. Here is Miller and former players Buck Martinez, Dave Winfield, and Don Baylor talking about what was created under Miller's tenure. I encourage the players to treat the union as their union, not my union, not anybody else's union. It was their union. It was there for them. They were the union. I was in my sixth year of uh, play in the big leagues, making uh, $16,000, and my fiance was flying for American Airlines making nineteen. And then the Messerschmitt-McNally uh, decision came down. Free agency was implemented in 76. And I went from making 16000 in 1976 to making 60000 uh, for for a year for on a two-year contract. I thought I was a millionaire. And uh, that's when it had an impact. And, and we could really see that we had been shortchanged for a long time. And there was something that we could now do about it. We started with very little. I won't say nothing, but very little. You weren't going to have a career where you could retire and be happy. But um, we had very little, so we stuck together and it worked on our behalf, you know, with multi-year contracts that they didn't used to give out and uh, guarantees, which they didn't used to give. So I was now beginning to see the fruits of our labor, the benefits of sticking together and going with the Players Association. Well, we were trying to uh, gain things, not lose things. And that's what Marvin always uh, talked about. Once you gave something back, you never get it again. So we always tried to make things better. Um, you know, we at that time, we were playing like 22 days without a day off, flying from coast to coast. I mean, just all the little things. It was not all about money all, a lot of the times. The secret of... of uh of the success of the Major League Baseball Players Union, you know. I said, it's not a secret. Uh, the solidarity of that membership through the years. Uh, you know, I, I've worked for many unions and know about many others in my whole adult life. I've been in labor management relations, and I don't know 
of another union with a record like that. As the years went by, Miller was not being recognized by the Baseball Hall of Fame, despite his immense impact on the game. Maybe my favorite Miller quote that I found is from 2010, after he was yet again not voted into the Hall of Fame. There's been a concerted attempt to downplay the union. It's been about trying to rewrite history rather than record it. They decided a long time ago that they would downgrade any impact the union has had, and part of that plan was to keep me out of it. You can apply that same rewrite history tag to what they're doing with the steroid era as well, in my opinion. After far too long, he was elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame this year, ironically, as we are in the middle of what feels like a work stoppage. Whether you think his contributions to the game were good or bad, I guess depends on which side you're on, the owners or the players. Owners, of course, hated him, and once he stepped down, they tried to strike back. The owners were not used to losing, and they just got beaten like a drum for 15 years. They enjoyed 100 years of one-sided negotiations, and starting with free agency, they started to see player salaries drastically increase. In 1950, 18% of annual team revenue was spent on player salary. In 1974, the last year before free agency, it was 25%. By 1980, it was 39%. What free agency also did was create the haves and have-nots. Teams like the Yankees spent exorbitantly in free agency. I mentioned Catfish Hunter, but in the 70s, they also signed Reggie Jackson and Goose Gossage. In 1980, they signed Dave Winfield to the richest contract in sports history, 10 years and $23 million. By 1983, the Yankees' payroll was just under $15 million, nearly double that of the next highest team. Then you had the penny-pinching franchises that were forced to trade their best players and never spent in free agency. The only way the Athletics would have been able to retain Catfish Hunter was with the reserve clause. Not unlike today, when Reggie Jackson hit the free agent market, there were only a couple of teams that were able to afford him. So two imbalances were created, but only one was real. One, the real one, was between the owners who spent big and the owners who never spent. Two, the perceived one, according to the owners, was between the owners and the players. It all led to a collusion trilogy called Collusion 1, Collusion 2, and, yes, you guessed it, Collusion 3. In 1984, the new commissioner, Peter Uberoth, guided the owners in an agreement that would limit position player free agent contracts to three years and pitcher free agent contracts to two years. They also created a back channel of information where all clubs would report on their negotiations with players in order to keep teams informed and prevent a bidding war from happening. This secret and illegal agreement essentially tried to create an unofficial reserve clause. It worked. Over the next three years, growth in player salary declined while profits increased. Big ticket free agents struggled to garner interest. Great players, some future Hall of Famers, only received contracts from their existing teams. Sporting News and Sports Illustrated ran stories titled Why Won't Anyone Sign Kirk Gibson and Hard Times for Free Agents, Kirk Gibson, the Superstar Nobody Wants. In the 86-87 offseason, Tim Raines entered free agency at the age of 27. He was the reigning NL batting champ, led the league in on-base percentage, and stole 70 bases. He received exactly one contract offer from his existing team, the Expos. And because of a weird rule that was seemingly put in place to benefit colluding owners, Reigns had to sit out until May 1st because he and the Expos were unable to agree on a contract by January 8th that winter. It wasn't hard to figure out what was going on. The PA filed separate grievances for all three off-seasons, and they won. Financial repercussions totaling $280 million were awarded, and interestingly, players affected were given a second-look free agent status, 
which allowed them to test the open market without having to give up their current contract. That's how Kirk Gibson ended up with the Dodgers. It was a terrible look for the owners. Uberoth was fired. And worst of all, the 1980 collusion cases effectively ruined the owner-player relationship. There was no more trust there. Even though the owners were caught red-handed and it was impossible to look even worse, they were not done fighting back. For the 1990 new CBA, owners proposed a drastic overhaul to the entire financial model, including a pay-for-performance system, revenue sharing, and a salary cap. Obviously, players laughed in the face at this proposal. Pay-for-performance and free agency don't mix, and a salary cap would also greatly reduce their earning potential. Large market owners also didn't love it because of the revenue sharing, but they were not the majority. No agreement was reached, and there was a lockout in spring training, but it didn't last long or impact the regular season. Basically, none of the owner's proposals ended up being adopted. Minimum salary increased, and this is my favorite part, a study committee was established on revenue sharing. So they just punted the whole idea down the road for the next negotiation. If it seems like the players held all the power at this point, they did. Over the previous decade, the owners had looked terrible with the collusion cases and now feared the strength of the union. They also didn't want to lose an entire season of revenue. If you want to compare it to what's going on right now, the direct opposite is happening today. Owners hold most, maybe not all, but most of the power and are not afraid to lose an already significantly diminished 2020 season. Okay, here's where things are about to get very Star Wars prequely. Bud Selig at this point was the owner of the Brewers, but he was the small market owner's gang leader. He was the one who led the revenue sharing and salary cap proposal, and he hated the resolution of the 1990 CBA. Something needed to be done before the 94 CBA, so after two years, he led a coup to force Commissioner Faye Vincent out of office and himself into office. He and the owners demanded Vincent not involve himself in the upcoming labor negotiations. Vincent refused, as expected, so Seelig called for a vote of no confidence, which he, Seelig, won, 18-9-1. to 9 to 1. Vincent resigned, making Seelig acting commissioner and still the owner of the Brewers. He now had full power to set the strategy heading into the next CBA negotiations, and the main goal, of course, was to reduce player salary. Leading up to the 93-94 talks, Seelig and the owners claimed baseball teams were losing more and more money each year because of increasing player salaries and they projected many MLB teams would be out of business unless a salary cap and revenue sharing system was implemented. This bold claim was not backed by hard data. Owners refused to share all financial information with the union. Sound familiar? But they mastered the public relations angle. Opinion was starting to lean in the owner's favor for the first time since Miller took over in the 1960s. It wasn't as easy as just Googling how much are the brewers worth, seeing it's over a billion dollars, and then laughing at the owners crying poor. Although, in fairness at the time, franchises were not worth nearly what they are today. But entering the 1994 season, there was no agreement. Prior to the season, the owners approved a new revenue sharing and salary cap proposal. Within the plan, salary arbitration was eliminated, and teams would gain the power to match and keep any free agent attempting to sign with another team. The owners proposed it in June. And the kicker? They actually said this would net more total dollars for the Players Association. How? Nobody knows. I mean, wasn't Bud Selig's aim the whole time to reduce overall salary? The players rejected it resoundingly. Since there was no CBA, they could strike at any time, which they did on August 12th. The MLBPA president, Donald Fear, attempted to get Congress involved after the owners withheld a pension payment, but they didn't intervene. It takes steroids and beloved home run records to get them involved. The overwhelming public sentiment when the players went on strike was that they were greedy. 
that as we know from past and now current experience, both sides deserve blame. Starting Friday, August 12th, 1994, there was no more baseball. 950 total regular season games were canceled, as well as the playoffs and the World Series for the first time since 1904. As old friend Charlie Steiner put it, World wars and acts of God couldn't do to baseball what 28 owners and 700 players have done. They've killed off the balance of the season. It costs owners nearly $600 million in revenue and players about $230 million in salary. From August through December, there was basically no communication and negotiations that happened. The owners almost imposed a new CBA with a salary cap, but in January, they backtracked on that idea. Instead, they reimposed the old CBA terms with a twist replacement players. Bud Selig said, we are committed to playing the 1995 season and will do so with the best players willing to play. This even got President Bill Clinton to weigh in. I had hoped that tonight I would be coming out to tell you that baseball was coming back in 1995. And for a good while this evening, I thought that that might well be the case. Unfortunately, the parties have not reached agreement. The American people are the real losers. The major league cities, the spring training communities, the families of thousands of Americans who won't have work unless there's a baseball season, and of course the millions of fans who have waited now for six long months for the owners and the players to give us back our national pastime. I have done all I could to change this situation. At my request, Bill Ussery, the highly respected former Secretary of Labor, has been working very hard in mediating this dispute. Players and owners still remain apart on their differences. Clearly, they are not capable of settling this strike without an umpire. So I have now concluded, since I have no legal authority in this situation, as all of you know and have known for some time, that I should send to the Congress legislation seeking binding arbitration of the baseball dispute. This is not a request for a congressionally imposed solution. It is a request for the only process we have left to us to find a solution through neutral parties. And the only way to do this appears to be for Congress to step up to the plate and pass the legislation. Unless they do, we may not have baseball in 1995. Clinton's baseball puns aside, with spring training around the corner, he asked that the two sides get back to the bargaining table and make substantial headway towards ending the strike. They didn't do that, so he threatened to strip baseball of its antitrust exemption if the dispute was not settled, something Fair tried to do in Congress prior to the strike. The baseball antitrust exemption dates back to 1922, when it was ruled they were not a multi-state business and thus exempt from the Sherman Act, which prevents businesses from conspiring to squash competition. In baseball's case, upstart leagues, which were much more common in the early 1900s. TLDR, it was yet another huge win for the MLB owners that, even though has lost some power over the years, they definitely did not want to lose. So despite the President of the United States' warnings, owners carried on in open spring training in February with replacement players. Scabs. Today in baseball conversations, we use replacement player when discussing something like war, which literally means wins above replacement. Aaron Judge's war in 2019 was 5.5, meaning he was worth 5.5 wins above replacement level player. Well, maybe not the replacement players that showed up to spring training 1995. The scabs, someone who crosses the picket line, were a motley crew. Few had MLB experience, most spent their time on affiliated minor league teams, 
and Summit only played independent ball. As an article in the Los Angeles Times put it, it was a wacky six weeks of replacement player ball that was fantasy camp for participants, an embarrassment to coaches and executives who oversaw it, and a gold mine of material for baseball writers. The crazy thing is not all the owners were even aligned on the issue. For example, Baltimore owner Peter Angelos refused to field a replacement team. The Marlins tried out a truck driver, a carpenter, a high school economics teacher, junior varsity coach, a rookie league manager, and two softball players at shortstop. It's funny because that could be a 2020 story as well. The Angels had a replacement pitcher named Brian Smith who was an active FBI agent. They also had an outfielder named John Fischel who was arrested during the national anthem of a game for failing to pay child support. He spent the night in jail and was back out there in uniform the next day. There was even a trade. The Indians traded five players to the Reds for future considerations. Reds manager Davey Johnson said, Cleveland definitely got the better end of the deal. They didn't get anybody. You'll actually recognize a few of the replacement players by name. Brendan Donnelly, Kevin Millar, Lou Merloni, Brian Daubach, and Shane Spencer. Yes, Shane Spencer. Why did some players choose to cross the picket line? They were offered $5,000 to participate and another $5,000 if they made the team. But more importantly than money, they saw it as a realistic path to the major leagues, a dream they all shared. Jeff Grotewald, a 29-year-old first baseman and replacement player for the Royals, said, My intention was not to cross a picket line. My intention was to keep a uniform on my back, continue to play and make a living. I was always the 26th, 27th, 28th guy on the roster. So you do what you can do. The common goal is for your family. And if I'm at home, I can't support my family. You know, I get it. Not everybody had a big money contract or was even a part of the Players Association. A Yankees replacement pitcher named Doug Sanella said, I was all in, looking to do the best for the organization. The Major League Baseball Players Association did nothing for minor league players. That was a sad reality then and now, although it has been nice to see some major leaguers like David Price and Sean Doolittle go out of their way to help minor leaguers during the shutdown this year. And I believe one of the recent proposals also had a fund being set up for minor leaguers. Perhaps if that happened back in 94-95, scabs wouldn't have played. MLBPA guys were pissed. Not only did they sue owners for violating labor laws, after the strike ended, former replacement players weren't always welcome in the clubhouse. But I wonder if anyone cared when Shane Spencer was hitting 10 home runs in September 1998, or does anyone mention it to Kevin Millar now, seeing as how he's an employee of MLB Network? Replacement players were also affected off the field. Since they were not part of the union, they weren't allowed to have their names or likeness used in MLBPA licensed products. That's why if you ever played a video game back then, they had fake names for those players. People close to the situation said the ridiculousness of the replacement players actually led to the end of the strike. Fair said, it's not the uniform people come to watch, it's the players. And he's right. While we all root for laundry, the things wearing the laundry have to be able to hit a curveball and turn a 6-4-3 double play. The owners almost made it to opening day with the charade, but on March 31st, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor issued a temporary injunction, preventing owners from playing with replacement players. This eventually ended the strike and the players went back to work under the terms of the old CBA, ready to open the season on April 27th for 144 games. Here is Bud Selig talking in 2018 about the strike and how he views it looking back. Look, the players went out on strike. And they were still on strike, and maybe I had unified the owners more than they'd ever been, and that maybe surprised a lot of people, but it was terribly painful. I remember when I had to announce, and 
it, that's an announcement that should have been made by everybody involved, but nobody else wanted to. And it was painful. This is a work stoppage that had been long coming. We had already had seven work stoppages. The atmosphere between the parties could not have been any worse. And it was really a heartbreaking situation. But I want to say this to you, and as a student of history, it's that sometimes you have to go through this to achieve what we do. So here we are, many 23 years later, and with, with four more to go, four or five more to go, so we're going to have 27 years of labor peace, unheard of. And, and I'm proud of that fact. So it was, it, 1994 was painful, will always be painful. But I do want to say to you that um, I'm, I'm proud of the parties. Uh, we made a labor deal in 02, 06, 11, and then Rob Manfred just did one too. So it's a remarkable record. I had a couple takeaways. You mentioned how he galvanized the owners. That's exactly what Marvin Miller did in the 60s with the players. He also said he's proud of the labor peace since the strike. What has happened in that time? Although 95 was a tough year, baseball recovered. Attendance boomed, revenues hit record highs, and player salaries took off. I'm not even sure Bud saw where the annual salaries for players were going. Pre-strike, Bobby Bonilla was the highest paid player in baseball at $6.3 million. In 2001, A-Rod earned $22 million. That's a 250% increase in seven years. They played the 95 and 96 seasons without a new CBA, but free agency and arbitration were reinstated and players were credited with service time for the strike. Overall, the players came out on top post-strike and in the 97 to 2001 agreement, but the owners did get the implementation of revenue sharing and a luxury tax on the five highest payroll teams. This agreement, 97 to 2001, would be the last time the players had the upper hand. Over the past 25 years, the owners have won small battle after small battle. They instituted the revenue sharing system and fine-tuned it in each agreement. They created the luxury tax system, and while that isn't a true salary cap, it's designed to act as one. But they did get an actual cap on draft and international bonus signings. There's also the qualifying offer system, which ties a draft pick and free agent signings. This wasn't a huge deal at first, but has had a greater focus in recent years. All that adds up to where we are now. For the past year or two, there have been casual mentions of work stoppages when the next CBA comes up in 2021. While nobody went on strike or implemented a lockout, it does feel like we're in the middle of a work stoppage right now. Are we just going round and round in circles? In the 1970s, players went on strike to get out of the reserve clause and earn some much needed and deserved rights. The owners colluded in the 80s to try and gain leverage they lost. The 94 strike was the culmination of distrust and resentment that formed in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, we've had 25 years of labor peace, but are we at a breaking point again? There's so much more to this story than I've presented. Those were just the highlights. And there's also probably more to the story than we know. But from what I can see, from the pattern that these two sides are operating in, I don't see any way for them to coexist peacefully unless there's a major overhaul. Thanks for listening.